This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portio. I'm Andrew Carroll. However, today we are not talking about character actors, at least not that much in depth. Um, but uh, don't go anywhere, please, because we are each choosing our top five movies of 2022. Woo! Woo! Now, um, some caveats, you know. Um, we do this podcast around our full-time jobs, purely because we just love the movies. The movies. But, it's um, the movies, baby. The movies. There's that, they talk about a blank check all the time, but the clip of Sean Connery at the Oscars where he comes out and is like, the movies. <laughs> um, but um, Andrew and I are not professional film critics, so we, you know, we didn't. Thank God. We didn't attend Cannes or Venice this year. <laughs> we don't go to a lot of critic screenings. Let's go to some. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we also live in Ireland, so we won't be talking about the Fablemans, uh, yes. Tar, or any of the Oscar I movies. I have a, a list here: all the Beauty and all the Bloodshed, Babylon, Pearl, Tar, Till, Women Talking, and the Fablemans. Aren't they're all not out in Ireland until 2023? Mm-hmm. Although I did catch an advanced screening of the Fablemans. Okay, and not I, bragging, Stephen. And I, I loved it. I, I probably would have been on my top five if it did get a 2022 release. Um, yeah, and there's been a couple of movies I've missed. I'll say from this year. Um, I have not seen After Sun, which um, I just saw today is coming to movie on January 6th. I'll probably watch it then. Avatar The Way of Water, I'm seeing it tonight, although you have seen it. I loved it. It's great. You loved it? Okay, great. That's uh, good to hear. I'm seeing it. Big JC is back and better than ever. I'm seeing it. I spent 19 euro on tickets for it today in the big (laughs) IMAX screen, so it better be good. Um, um, I haven't seen Blonde. You have. um, I haven't seen it. Yeah, haven't seen Bros happening uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio She Said and The Innocents mm-hmm. and I, I'm only just put saying this because like after we recorded our best of 2021 movies I saw Drive My Car in Titan which probably would have been my number one and two of that yeah, year yeah, same here. over yeah. The Brilliant Pig which was, was crowned uh, my favourite flick of the year on mm-hmm. that podcast um, yeah before we get into the um, our favourites I thought we'd talk a little bit about the year as a whole Yeah, I have to say that while there were Probably there have been better movie years in the past. We were recently talking about um, how stacked 2007 was when mm. we were discussing Michael Payne. That's true. I yeah. thought 2022 was a lot better in terms of cinematic offerings than last year, you know. Um, yeah, very much so. Obviously, a part of that is COVID having less of an impact on the industry, you know. Unlike last year with the, the cinema closures, I, I went to the cinema nearly every week in 2022, sometimes twice, three times, even like one time, maybe four times a week. <laughs> um I also think there wasn't the same kind of expectation on movies delayed by COVID as there was last year with things like No Time to Die or A Quiet Place Part 2 or Tenet where it was like, you know, I've seen posters and trailers for this for like 18 months. It better be amazing. And yeah. I think whatever the quality of those movies, I, th- I think out of those, Tenet worked best for me personally. I think those 2021 movies inevitably struggled a bit to like live up to the hype. You know, we, we didn't have that same problem this year, I don't think. That's true. But uh, counterpoint, there was no Kong versus Godzilla this year. So, uh, listen, like... I think this year there were like just better movies and a more diverse <laughs> offering of movies on 2022 and on a blockbuster front I thought Top Gun Maverick was excellent absolutely yeah the blockbusters really came back yeah the, um, I thought the Batman was Thank very God. good yeah uh, except for Paul Dano's performance shite dreadful what one of the worst performances he's ever given that's a, that's a crazy opinion. I'm sorry he's given he's, he's been he's been a subject <laughs> on the podcast before but gunning him like this right on the eve of the Fablemans yeah miserable performance dreadful I, I think he's very good in that movie yeah. um just, just in general, like, just he's he's very effective at being creepy. I don't know. <laughs> not, not here. Okay, um, 
Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was a bit flawed on account of I think having to fit into this increasingly aimless MCU project mm-hmm. um, you know the, the less said about Thor Love and Thunder the better and the, the lesser said about Black, Black Panther Wakanda Forever the better I didn't see Black Panther Forever oh, um, but also, also bad um, <laughs> but um, I was surprised with Doctor Strange how much its director you know Sam Raimi stamp was on it mm-hmm. um, I'm in the minority for this but I thought Moonfall rocked I haven't um, seen that I keep meaning to get to it but uh, the whole two hours ten minutes thing really precludes watching it on a weekday night that's true yeah um, and I think we also have other blockbusters if maybe less expensive ones in our top fives of the year so we'll talk mm, a bit more yeah. but I, I consider that like a good year Very in terms much of blockbusters so, yeah. Yeah. Um, it really was the year of horror though right absolutely yeah yeah I mean, even last year, horror kind of stepped up, the pl- stepped up to the place where every other genre kind of fell down. Yeah, like I, um, I don't have a horror movie in my top five. I can't remember if you do. I do. Yeah, you do. But um, the following movies, I all thought were pretty good to great. And uh, you know, if you've seen them, like, feel free to give me like a mm-hmm. one sentence review yeah. of these. Barbarian. Uh, good. Um, too many twists. I thought it was sick. Uh, I love. Oh, it thing. is sick. Yeah, but I just think that you know, sick in a good way. Could have like, used one less twist. Um, it just felt like it got got to place too quickly I don't know do you like the Justin Long cut oh yeah that, that bit's great yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that was so, so good um, Crimes of the Future haven't seen him terrific movie it feels like what David Cronin's just been building up to his whole career yeah. and Christian Stewart would have been best supporting actress winner no hands down yeah have, have, didn't get to see it because I was on holiday when it came out have been dying to see it ever since um, but I'm waiting for like a Blu-ray release which just doesn't seem to be happening uh, anytime soon anyway I'll run through these and if you've seen them you know, feel free to jump yeah. in um, All My Friends Hate Me nope uh, Bones and All uh, yeah didn't think it was that great I uh, thought it was well made uh, just didn't have an emotional impact or response to it I thought I had something. I, I really like it. Um, Watcher. Really wanted to do. Again, uh, always in the bag for my Ike Monroe. Smile. Rich. Maybe the most solid one out of all of the movies. You know? It was really, really good. Yeah. I, I, it went hard. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So mean. Yeah. Speaking of mean, Speak No Evil. Very mean <laughs> movie. Um, yeah. Just the, the quality of filmmaking, particularly the first two thirds of Speak No Evil. Like, uh, it was unbelievable. Um, X. X good cool movie good to great The Menu uh, didn't see it Off Season didn't no. see it Bodies 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 didn't see it The Black Phone didn't uh, didn't see it have read the story didn't want to see the movie Prey uh, great Fresh didn't see it Dark Glasses didn't see it very good I, like, I want to just point this out proper return to form for Dario Argento a sweeter side of Dario Argento wow. that uh, was nice to see he's just a little teddy bear Hatching nope The Feast nope the Feast is a movie where it's like you think you've seen everything in a horror movie and then something happens in The Feast where you're like oh my god <laughs> um, this was a Welsh language movie that came out earlier this year and of course Halloween Ends The Ballad of Corey Cunningham very very interesting movie um, in many bad ways but uh, all of them fun do you remember what you said to me as the, the, the credits rolled uh, I remember what I said to you in the middle of the movie but I don't remember what I said at the end you turned to me at the end and said what a piece of shit but an interesting piece of <laughs> shit. <laughs> what did you say to me in the middle of the movie? I said, um, it feels like they're trying to remake Christine. Yes, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Um, and um, we'll discuss more later when we get into top five talk, but a pretty great year for Irish cinema. Um, yeah, very I much do, so. I do think now we should shout out some Irish horrors like Nacebo, You Are Not My Mother in the Cellar, which I thought were pretty solid. Mm. Um, I thought it was a pretty good year though in, in terms of other genres. Like, I, It was kind of a low-key decent year for comedies. Do you think? I've seen two Irish films this year so um, I'll, no. let you, I'll let you well I meant like comedies oh in yes. general right yeah. Uh, yeah The Lost City 
pretty yeah, good. Yeah, it was pretty good. Good year for rom-coms. You don't see that anymore. Yeah, true. Uh, the Lost City, um, that George Clooney, Julia Roberts one, which I haven't seen, is meant to be good. Oh uh, yeah, Ticket to Paradise. Yeah, and Cha Cha Real Smooth. Haven't seen it. Uh, Bros, Fire Island. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen either of those two. Me neither. But you know, still, it's great. Great to see these kind of movies coming yeah. back. But also, like know. a lot of like kind of comedy hybrids. Like we got Triangle of Sadness. You know, Funny Pages, uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, the Nicolas Cage mm, movie, yeah. uh, Glass I mean, Onion, Confess one. Fletch. See how they run. Like a lot of the, we yeah. I, yeah. I kind of realized how much I, I miss these kind of lighter movies just being around. They're yeah. like solid. You know. Yeah. Um, thrillers there were Nightmare Alley The Outfit Kimmy and by far the most unhinged movie of the year Deep Water the climax <laughs> of which is Ben Affleck's cooked husband chasing on a mountain bike a car being driven by Tracy Letts where Letts' noir character is shouting this is it this is a book <laughs> um, yeah great dramas After Yang Nit Dram Bergman Island Armageddon Time The Wonder there were big art- auteur swings mm. I thought like Robert Eggers is the North Man that's Paul, yeah Paul Verhoeven's yeah. Benedetta The mm. Daniels Everything Ever All at Once Noah Baumbach's White Noise Baz Luhrmann's Elvis yeah I, I, I kind of want to shout out Elvis which I think is a flawed movie that suffers from being a little sanitized and trying to tackle too many things yeah you know it's 160 minutes long and even then it feels like it's just speeding through so much and like I think the manic editing almost kind of suffocates Austin yeah. Butler's like transcendent performance but it has two or three scenes or four or five scenes that, that are like scene of the year best yeah, of scenes yeah, of the year yeah, yeah. When, uh, it, when it manages to slow down just a little to focus on um, Austin Butler it's like maybe one of the best moves of the year I agree so I, I but think then everything else around it just kind of takes away from it yeah I'm, I'm, that's why I'm kind of excited for Sophie Coppola's Priscilla and Elvis movie Elvis and Me I think it's called oh that's going yeah, out next yeah, year yeah, yeah. Um, I will say like it was a good year for film but like I think we've we've bemoaned in the past like this death of the sort of mid-budget film you know like these polished looking movies with famous yeah. actors yeah. that are aimed at adults and you know and they're like movies that aren't blockbusters but aren't indies and I think we got a lot of them this year but it was frustrating as a fan of things like Armageddon Time Bones and All Crimes of the Future, Nightmare Alley, The Northman, my number one movie of the year, which I'll talk more about later, to to you know watch them all struggle at the box office, and they're all movies aside from Crimes of the Future, maybe, which I think at a time would have been seen as commercial. Mm, yeah, and yeah. obviously the money a movie makes doesn't affect my enjoyment of it, but box office does often dictate whether filmmakers will be allowed to take similar risks again, and to see all these interesting, all worthwhile movies, whether whether you like think they're like perfect or not. I'll struggle to get bums and seeds well. Some blockbusters, which I thought felt in some respects a little half-assed, you know, like Thor: Love and Thunder, or Black uh, Adam. Yeah, yeah. Like it's Black not Adam, great to see. Dreadful, yeah. dreadful <laughs> film. And there, did you see the news? There, there probably won't be getting a sequel. Well, the the hierarchy of the DC universe has definitely changed, <laughs> just not in the ways we thought. Um, so I, I just kind of urge people before we get into our top five that like if there's a smaller movie from a director you like or you see a trailer for a small movie and it intrigues you go see it in the cinemas don't wait for it to go to stream because like I think they need your support absolutely yeah um, we move into our top five let's do it I feel like I've been talking for a while so do you want to do your top five first yeah sure so my number five is on Colleen Kuhn or The Quiet Girl to um, non-Irish speaking listeners this follows the character of Koch played by Catherine Clinch who's a quiet uh, nine-year-old girl living in rural Ireland in the 1980s, neglected by her alcoholic father and her overworked pregnant mother and bullied by her older siblings and classmates. Koch is sent to live with her mother's cousin, Aveline, played by wonderful Carrie Carrie Crowley. So good. And her husband, Sean, played by the even more wonderful Andrew Bennett, um, across the country in County Waterford. Uh, Koch blossoms under their care and despite secrets boiling beneath the surface, she at last feels at home somewhere. 
uh, yeah, this is the only film I think um, this year that made me cry in a cinema. I saw it for a press screening back in ooh, March, April or May. It was one of those late spring films anyway. And uh, other than Avatar The Way of Water, the only film to make me cry in the cinema this year. Um, wait, no. It was the only film to make me cry in the cinema this year. Avatar came close. Okay. But uh, didn't didn't quite get there. Um yeah, this is a beautiful, often sun-soaked snapshot of an Ireland long gone, but whose ripples still wash over our present. Um, Irish cinema is kind of often known for its kind of hard scrabble and unfair realism, often depicting kind of hard done by women and men who are withdrawn alcoholic bruisers. But most of us, in Ireland at least, uh, are aware that we're a bit more complicated than that. Um and as time has gone by, we are no longer a race of people that uh, Sigmund Freud once described as impossible to psychoanalyze. <laughs> um, and all of this is easily seen in Colin Kuhn from its lush and rich soundscapes um, to the sun-dappled compositions that evoke a surface spareness with a rich lived-in world beneath it. And I think on Colin Kuhn walks a fine line between the firm of fair realism Irish cinema is known for and something a lot more dreamlike and ephemeral. Um, all, all of the performances are good um, but the main trio of Clinch, Crowley and Bennett um, especially Clinch sell the story really remarkably well and I think it's Clinch's film but Bennett, Andrew Bennett I think is the script's secret weapon he gets all the best lines all the biggest emotional beats and everyone just loves it as uh, one of our guests uh, this year Aoife Bagnall said everyone just loves a good movie da that's true yeah. that is a good point um, you get like really lyrical stuff that sounds even sound that sounds really good in English where Andrew Bennett says many's the person who missed the opportunity to say nothing and lost much because of it <laughs> or um, where uh, Aveline is like brushing um, Koch's hair and she's like if you were mine I'd never leave you in a house full of strangers and it's really like devastating yeah that. really reflective because like they're strangers when Koch comes to them but she's also going and going to end up being sent back to a house full of strangers because you know her family just don't care about her and uh, I think this is like a really specific Irishness to it more so than some other Irish films have this year um, hey, hey now don't don't uh, <laughs> mess with a list a movie that I'm going to talk about later <laughs> but please but a universality as well which has probably made it a lock for best international feature at the Oscars next February I'm calling it now it's a new classic of the Irish canon Stephen it's, it's been getting rave reviews I, I saw Rotten Tomatoes say it's like one of the most positively reviewed movies of ever any movie released in 2022 <laughs> James Mangold came out on Twitter and was heaping praise on it yeah. recently um, yeah I completely agree this is my number 10 on my list um, it, it begins you're like you, you kind of think that like this movie is going to be quite like mm. kind of gritty and kind of miserableist and I, I just loved how captivating it was and how you really watch this little kid open up mm, and yeah, be given absolutely. kind of the love that she needs and um, just the fact that like the whole movie can just be that yeah. and like is you'd rather be nowhere else is, is really exactly, like an amazing yeah, feat yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more I loved it guy going to my number five go for it number five, number five. Um, The Woman King so um, for those who don't know this is a historical epic that is set in 1823 in uh, Dahomey which was a West African kingdom that was located within present day Benin um, the Dahomey kingdom was notable for having one of the few documented female armies in modern history um, who were called the Agoji and uh, Marvel, fa- Marvel fans will probably know that the Agoji are the real life warriors who Black Panther special forces the Dora Malaji are based on so um, yeah, the Adum King centers on General Naniska played by I know the face icon Viola Davis <laughs> 
She's Welcome back to the show, Viola. <laughs> she is the Agoji leader who must train and lead her army into battle against the rival Oyo Empire, who have formed an alliance with uh, Portuguese slave traders. Also part of the Agoji are two close allies of Naniska, who are played by actresses Lashana Lynch and Sheila Atim, and also this teenager and new recruit into the army named Naoi, played by Fusu Mbeidu, um, who was in the Underground Railroad, and who's the lead in that Barry Jenkins um, Amazon series. And um, she is uh, mentored by Naniska and her friends. evil is coming that threatens our kingdom our freedom but we have a weapon they are not prepared for my king the Europeans wish to conquer us they will not stop until the whole of Africa is theirs. We must fight back for our people. Maneska, you are asking me to take them to war. War. Some things are worth fighting for. Um, this is a total blast. Um, it's comparable in its plot and tone to movies like Braveheart or The Last Samurai or The Outlaw King or any other other historical epics about kind of a group of people outnumbered and outweaponed, taking a stand against their oppressors and trying to defeat them through sheer skill and ingenuity on the battlefield. Um, I think uh, its director, uh, Gina Prince-Blythewood, who previously made the Netflix superhero movie The Old Guard, which I quite liked, manages to stage the Woman King's uh, training or war scenes with just, just such great clarity. Like, you can track where the characters are in the action. You know what's trying to be achieved at all times. There are details or story beats that are subtly set up in the training section that just pl- play off like a slot machine in the kind of climactic battles. Um, there's also real emphasis on the physicality of the fighting too you know like while the Agoji are presented as having trained their whole life to fight they're not superheroes and the fighting feels to me a bit more gritty and hard hitting than you you could expect in Mm. a Hollywood epic yeah and um I think a lot of that's down to the actors. Yeah, like obviously, we love Viola Davis here. You know, she was the first person we covered on the show. And I feel like when we covered her, she was maybe somewhere between a character actor and a star. But since, now she's a star. Yeah. yeah Bonafide. With, with projects like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and The Woman King, like she's re-cemented herself as being one of the great leading actresses. Yeah, and absolutely. Her own The Woman King shares similarities with her performances in things like Blackout or Widows, where she's playing a character that on the surface is very taciturn and tough and steely. And yet, somehow, Davis always conveys to viewers that just under the exterior of the character, there's this great wealth of emotion. And it's something she's always been great at, but it's rare you see a, a full film built around that skill yeah, of hers. Yeah. And um, plus she and like her co-stars, Lashana Lynch, and she, the team, just got jacked for this. Like They look so <laughs> like formidable and imposing during the action scenes. And while I, I'd consider Viola Davis one of the greatest, if not the greatest actor alive, like I didn't know she had it in her to lead an action movie. But, um, you know, she can add that to her resume. And Lashana Lynch, too, is someone who I, I've seen in other movies and liked. But here, you know, where she's playing the kind of less haunted and uh, more straight up badass character, mm-hmm. um, Izogi, she's like Clint Eastwood or like Lee Marvin, <laughs> le- levels of cool. And um, But it's also like telling that Prince Blythewood, uh, director, started off making straight up dramas like Love and Basketball and Beyond the Lights, too, because the Woman King also weaves in amongst all its battle scenes. this very emotional story. Basically, in Dahomey is presented in the movie. The only option for young girls is to be married off to a husband by their family when they're a teen and be subservient to them or become a member of the Goji where you have a bit more autonomy, but you're also banned from having 
any romantic relationship or children and you have to you know risk your life fighting yeah, yeah. and it's fascinating and the, the movie's very interested in showing how devoting your life to the Egoji cause impacts the characters but also showing how the characters persevere despite their difficulties for Davis's character like the endless fighting has taken its toll on her mind and body she's also haunted by this awful experience in her youth when she was captured by the Oyo before escaping but on a more positive side, like for the Lashana Lynch character, fighting with the Egoji becomes a way for her to like purge her rage at the way women are treated in Dahomey. And you also witness in the movie this like scrappy teen Nawe escape her dominating father and find this real surrogate family amongst these older female warriors who really look out for each other. And like that's very moving. And particularly the bond between Davis's Naniska and the young Nawe character. Um, so like I love this for being just like a crowd pleasing epic that happens to be a bit more emo- have a bit more emotional weight than you might expect for movies of the type. But it's also like great to just to see one of these epics made at such a large scale actually be set in Africa and led by four you know black female actresses and a black female director. And it's worth saying that the movie caused a little controversy because its marketing says it's inspired by true events, but some have taken issue with certain details in the film script. Mm, like yeah. um, the movie sees Naniska persuade King Gezo, played by uh, a really good John Boyega, um, to put an end to the slave trade of Dahomey. But many have argued that this is inaccurate to the stark record. Um, Prince Blythewood herself has disputed that, saying um, what people are parroting, the Wikipedia historians, it's a history written from the wrong point of view. And she said that the, the people behind the movie went to great lengths to consult academics and historians from Benin. I'm not an expert in the history of the Dahomey Kingdom, so I'm not qualified to make a judgment on the accuracy. But I will say, like, on a project like this, you know, a Hollywood historic epic, you know, and a dramatization, you know, I'm not looking for 100% accuracy. Mm, and, yeah. um, and anyone that is is a fucking nerd. <laughs> and, like... Um, I think this movie's main function is to entertain and like The Woman King really does when I saw this in a cinema there's a moment like three quarters of the way through where something shocking happened and the whole line's like including me like audibly gasped mm. you know and um, it was a really great moment you know and it's uh, once you I feel like that's a, a true tale sign that like this is working as it was intended to yeah I talk about my number four absolutely yeah. for it. so my number four number four <laughs> is Ambulance Michael Bay's Return to form after the dreadful Six Underground. Um, yeah, absolutely. Marine Corps uh, veteran Will Sharp, played by Yaya Abdul Mateen II, needs money to cover his wife's experimental surgery. Desperate, he turns to his estranged brother Danny, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, and is talked into helping him rob $32 million from a Los Angeles bank. The heist goes bad, and soon the brothers have hijacked an ambulance with EMT Cam, played by Isaac Gonzalez, and badly injured LAPD officer Zach, played by Jackson White, on board. With the LAPD and FBI in hot pursuit, the two brothers have to escape and make sure that Zach doesn't die. That's my brother, Will. I could use some help. My wife needs this surgery. This is real life. How's that right? You put your life down on the line for this country? You leave your family, your home? How much do you need? 231. How about more? 32 million. I need an extra man. I came to you for a loan. Look, have I ever gotten you anything that I couldn't get you out of? It's time for you to do something for your family. What can I do you for, officer? We're just doing a transfer in the back. I'll lay you uh, in in 20 minutes. Uh, if I could just get it done real quick, because I'm on the clock, promise not to rob the place. Oh. <laughs> Seriously, because that would be bad for my job. Okay. <laughs> I promise. All right, okay. All right, all okay. right. Come all on. Right. <laughs> okay. Let's go, D. You are all going to have the greatest story to tell at dinner tonight. Get out! Um... So this uh, film that feels like an intimate claustrophobic character drama but with Bayhem going off all around it. 
Uh, it's a movie in the spirit of Mad Max Fury Road and that it's basically one long car chase full of explosions, expletives and echoing gunfire. It's uh, Michael Mann's Heat, but if that 12-minute shootout was multiplied by 10 <laughs> and um, Robert De Niro just kept running away from Al Pacino <laughs> yeah. uh, is basically what this movie is. Um and I think Gonzalez and Abdul, Abdul Mateen do a lot of the kind of emotional heavy lifting, uh, you know, uh, as Abdul Mateen as like this um, desperate, um, financially strapped veteran. And Gonzalez is this like emotionally closed off, haunted um, paramedic. And they do a lot of the heavy lifting here. But the performance anyone really remember from Ambulance is Jake Gyllenhaal's, which feels like watching someone who just snorted cocaine off a live electrical wire go bonkers basically and Bay's cut cut zoom style of filmmaking really suits the performances and situations here where it never did in the likes of say Six Underground or something that needed to be a bit more I guess mournful towards the end in um, 13 Days The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi mm-hmm. and like there's just so much there's just so many great lines in this most of them go to Gyllenhaal in fairness where he's like he's trying to operate one of those automatic defibrillators uh, so that they can b- stop Zach, uh, the police officer Zach from dying and Isaac Gonzalez is trying to instruct him and he's like I don't know which button this thing's like a fucking Atari machine <laughs> yeah. and I think it might not have Bay's best sequences or even direction but it does feel like he's maturing a little bit with the discussion of America's treatment of its veterans the good work of ordinary that ordinary people do in messed up capitalistic systems mm-hmm. and it's reflective glances back at Bay's own career with the references to The Rock and Bad Boys um, and they kind of feel like the mark the mark of a filmmaker maturing because he because he wants to not because he has to Yeah. and a special shout out to um, Garrett Dillahunt here as pre- police hoping captain. you'd say yeah. it yeah. Um, and he, I forget who the actor is who plays the special agent the FBI special agent but the, they have a great moment where they interact where they first meet and he's like um, the FBI agent says can we just cut the bullshit and you know I say you say you ask me how young I am and I say how old are you and when, when did you um, get out of Vietnam and he's like Vietnam how old do you think I am <laughs> yeah um, with that said I've been wrong before about Michael Bay so feel free to come back to me when this on this when Bay makes Jarhead party liaison in two years <laughs> okay. um, and I think in a year without like the John Wick or many kind of similar kind of clones like the only one I can really think of is maybe Violent Night that came out mm. recently with David Harbour um, it was good to see a different kind of action dominate the big screen yeah no I, I agree and th- I think this is one of those just terrific elevator pitches like you're, like person strapped for cash goes to his you know strange brother for help and the brother is literally in the middle of like I'm gonna rob this bank yeah. do you, you want to come with me yeah. and then the fact that it is first like 20 minutes is like straight up heat and then turns into speed yeah. <laughs> um, just like a, an amazing concept and um, I think you're right that there is like definitely deeper stuff in the movie mm. but um, I, I was really just caught up in the kind of the frenzy this yeah bit. yeah and absolutely yeah. Like, so many just like I think Bay is always even in like something like Six Underground which I think is like I think chaotically edited and stuff like that he's just a very good at like beautiful shots you know what yeah, I mean yeah very much and so and there's even that little scene of um, where the officers try to go into the bank as it's being robbed mm. and he the the officer has a crush on one of the bank towers and he yeah. really wants to go in and he's being very persistent Jake Gyllenhaal's like okay guy, you can come on in and the camera just holds on Jake Gyllenhaal's face as he just drops his nice persona. Yeah, yeah. So such a good shot. Yeah, or the bit where they're like, they, they've just um, 
escaped from the LA River from this massive apparently unplanned they uh, they only got the helicopters for like two and a half hours and managed to shoot the whole thing with Jake Gyllenhaal no stunned person hanging at the side of a door shooting at the helicopters after they finished that sequence um, uh, running through the being chased through the river by two helicopters uh, he puts his airpods in and starts listening to the songs you know sailing doo-doo. all while like they're the they've tapped the police officers have tapped into their radio uh, and they're like what the fuck are they doing this guy's fucking crazy and they were both like sailing <laughs> was it you who was like you were ranking the Michael Bay movies you were like yeah number three you know The Rock number two Armageddon number one the scene where they sing to sailing in ambulance yeah. <laughs> um, it was me yeah that yeah, was me yeah. that's a no it's a great movie uh, my number four is Red Rocket but you're, it's going to come up later in your list so mm. will I move on to my number three go for it yeah um, The Banshee's Vinny Sheeran uh, the movie that you uh, just threw under the bus yeah. um, casually. Um, I just think it's overrated. Well, I'm I think gonna, it's good. Listen, I'm going to show you why you're wrong in a sec. If you just give me the time. Go for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you for, have plenty of time on this show, Stephen. Yeah, for those living under a rock, um, the seas, the much <laughs> celebrated. Yeah, just insult the audience as well. <laughs> the seas, the much celebrated, if not often um, provocative playwright and uh, ride writer, Mark McDonough. Reteaming with his in Bruges um, stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson for this drama set in 1923 in the fictional Irish island of Inishirin. And the story begins with Colm, uh, played by Gleeson, um, abruptly ending his longtime friendship with Podrick, played by Farrell, which sends Podrick into an emotional tailspin. And along with this, we also follow Podrick's sister, who he lives with, Siobhan, played by Kerry Condon, and a local troubled teen in the area named Dominic, played by Barry Keohan, as they try in vain to mend uh, Colm and Podrick's friendship. Colm, Sonny, Larry. In June, he used to be the best of friends. We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? I said somewhere else. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. Well, you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. You liked me yesterday. Why does he not want to be friends with you no more? Why is he 12? What the hell's going on with you, me feckin' brother? He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been done. The other night, two hours, you spent talking to me about the things you found in your little donkey shite that day. Well, it wasn't me little donkey shite. It was me pony shite, which shows how much you were listening. Yeah, this came out earlier in the year to near universal claim. It's probably one of the least divisive of the Batman movies likely to be nominated at the Oscars for Best Picture, which is kind of interesting for McDonough given the controversy that often surrounds his plays and some of his movies, mm. particularly Three Billboards Outside of Missouri. That said, while I think most people I know love this movie, I've heard a few people argue that maybe it's a little slight uh, yeah I think it, I think uh, it definitely wasn't what I expected yeah, and, yeah. I, and I think it's a little bit that like it's essentially a forehander and doesn't have this sort of propulsive narrative drive of something like in Bruges where it's two hitmen laying low in a European city or three billboards where it's a mother trying to get justice for her daughter mm. who was murdered but I for me I actually think that's the strength of Banshees that like for me it didn't need that ticking plot premise to grip viewers and I think Stripping away the excess and flash of McDonough's earlier work allows this film to feel very primal. Like, I, I think this is really a movie about humanity and the peculiarities of the Irish land. The fact that so much of the country is like stunningly beautiful and has all this rich his- history, but it's so isolated. Mm. And I think Banshees is similar to another favorite movie of ours set on an island, The Lighthouse, where <laughs> there's so many interpretations of what it could mean, you know, like, because y- you can interpret it as this almost Greek tragedy about loneliness, particularly the loneliness of rural Irish life and the negative impact mentally that can have on people. You can read it as McDonough's debating himself like would you rather devote most of your time to being kind and well liked or to being creative and making art that will be remembered long after you've passed away and I think the best scene of the movie is this confrontational bar scene between Colm and Podrick where they argue about this and 
the reason Colm gives for breaking up with Podrick essentially is he wants to compose music. More simply, it could just be about what does one do when a long friendship has just run its course and one party in it just doesn't get anything out of it that's worthwhile. And I think the period setting just kind of amplifies the awkwardness of such a situation because there, there's nothing else to do, you know, mm, nothing else yeah. to see. There's also allusions to Irish myths, you know, like Colm writes this instrumental tune on his fiddle called the Banshees of Inishirin and says that he thinks that if there were Banshees on Inishirin they'd probably just stand on the sidelines and laugh at the inhabitants of the island and then there is this witch-like figure mm. played by Shea Fitton who does comment Alan on the Sonny action Larry. Yeah, and like gives these ominous forecasts of what's going to happen so maybe just the events of the story are, are being orchestrated by mythical forces for their amusement and we're just watching that maybe um, so but as, and I think you had a bit of an issue with this but like the movie takes place during the tail end of the Irish Civil War like, you literally hear the bombs and the mm. gunfire on the mainland as the Inishirin population go about their day and I do you think Columns and Podrick's feud could maybe be interpreted as a metaphor for that like two I sides I think it's the weakest kind of argument though two sides previously aligned the fallout with shocking consequences I, I also think it's a, it also sets it in a certain time where it's like there's a reason they can't leave the island yeah it's a, it's a good narrative frame I just don't think it has the uh, figurative uh, impact but, but do you not think it's oppressive like the movie can you know be read in all these ways and go to some very weird and dark places while still being not only coherent but also pretty entertaining and funny and like I think McDonough's trademark pitchback comedy and Crackling Dog is still in full effect here like that's a pretty impressive balancing act my, my issue isn't with that my issue is with the fact that it just left no emotional impression on me okay yeah. I, I listen it might be a thing but um like I the, the performance has got me I mean um Tom Farrell one of the best working Actors, it has been for years. It, with that, with that, with what I just said, said, um, I will say that if he does win the Oscar, I won't begrudge him it. Sure, okay. Um, uh, begrudgery is a classic trait uh, <laughs> yeah, among yeah. Irishmen Everyone's for any like, of our listeners. Oh, you know, yeah. Colin Farrell, man, yeah. he got got into full into his head yeah, since he won that yeah. Oscar. He hasn't yeah. made a movie. Ah, it's he's in his head. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Here's playing a character who's not very intelligent and is quite flawed, but just through sheer rawness and openness and naked vulnerability, I th- think he makes the viewer love him. You know, mm-hmm. love the character. Yeah. And um, like, I think the scene where he has the big fight with Colm in the bar and then just kind of kisses his sister gently on the forehead and walks away. Like it, that got me emotionally. Where he's talking about like, I remember my parents being kind. That re- resonates through time more than art. I don't know who Beethoven is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think between like Thirteen Lives, which I haven't seen but I've heard is great, but also like his stellar work in this after Yang, where he's like the emotional linchpin of that movie, and the Batman, where he's just having so much fun chewing the scenery and it's infectious. He's just had a great year, and it's he lovely really to has, see him yeah. get his due. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. As big Miami Vice stands are here. Um, <laughs> I think I said it when we talked about The Guard on this podcast, uh, made by the other McDonough brother, but like Brendan Gleeson is a real, like, when's he bad actor? And I think his performance is fascinating here in its subtleties. You know, like he's playing a character who projects this kind of stern and determined manner, but also it seems to be dealing with this, like, great inner torment. Kerry Condon's wonderful too. Like her character, Siobhan, is basically the heart of the movie. Then the audience surrogate, you know, like she's the one who sees the mundane madness of the island for what it is and decides to make a change for the better for herself. I do think the movie is arguably stolen by I Know the Face All-Star, Barry Keown. Um, he plays his character, Dominic, who appears to be emotionally stunted and lacks social awareness. And because of that, he says a lot of crass things, which is sort of used for comic effect in the movie. And Keown's very funny in the movie. But between the glimpses we get of his relationship with his father, who's played by a terrifying uh, Gary Lydon, and also the way Keohan subtly through his performance conveys to viewers the pain of his character, Dominic, and it's a pain that he can express in words. Is absolutely like, devastating. Like many Irishmen. Yeah, and like I think there's that scene that's been going around on Twitter 
of you know the scene where he asks out Kerry Condon mm, yeah. and like it's just a masterclass of acting I I think so anyway yeah. um, so I'm very pro Banshees and the good news is that if people miss it in the cinema they can check it out on Disney Plus um, I think by the time this episode airs so. enjoy I sure didn't <laughs> <laughs> cruel um <laughs> The Podcast Studios is the home of the Headstuff Podcast Network. It's where lots of our shows are recorded, and we work on editing, promotion, videos, live shows, and lots more. As a podcast production company with three state-of-the-art studios for audio and video in Dublin City Centre, we can work with you to tell great stories in a professional and engaging way. From government organisations to charities, arts groups to international brands, entrepreneurs to hobbyists, we've worked with everybody, and we can help you to get the word out. Whether you need studio time, you're hosting a live stream or webinar, or you need support with editing or marketing, we can tailor a package for you. For more info, head to thepodcaststudios.ie. I know that fates are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I know that face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. What's your number three? Oh, yeah. Number three. Number three. Nope. That's my number nope. three. Nope, nope is my number three. Um, not of planet Earth. Not of planet Earth. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, aren't you clever? Uh, <laughs> Do you know he, he said that he wanted to, originally to call it Little Green Man, but it was meant to be the the green on the dollar. You know, like. Oh, for fuck's sake, God! Every every time he every time Jordan Peele explains any of his movies, I like him less. Um, but he said it, it sounded too much like a directed DVD movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It sure does. Um, I like Jordan Peele, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I I, I like him as well. Yeah. Um, Daniel Cleary plays Otis Haywood Jr., uh, aka OJ, and he's inherited his father his family's ranch after the death of Otis Sr., played by Keith David. His poor social skills and declining business have forced him to sell off horses to nearby Jupiter's Claim amusement park owner, Ricky Jupe Park, played by <laughs> an incredible Stephen Young. One of the best supporting performances of the year. Definitely, yeah. Chris Catan. <laughs> He has enough stuff for him to, for for us to do, do him by now. Chris Catan? No, no, not Chris Catan. <laughs> Yeah, no, Stephen Young, absolutely. Uh, um, one night, Otis spots a UFO in the sky and with his sister El- Emerald, played by Kiki Palmer, local tech geek Angel, played by Brandon Perea, and acclaimed cinematographer Antlers Holst, played by the wonderful Michael Wincott, he attempts to capture footage in hopes of getting the Oprah shot, the money shot, a big payday. <laughs> yes. From footage absolutely. of a terrifying UFO. What if I told you that today You'll leave here different. Pops. Pops! I'm talking to you. Bro, what'd you see? Something about the clouds. That's big. How big? Big. 
You think whatever killed Pops is out there? Right here, you are gonna witness an absolute spectacle. So what happens next? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Here we go. And I think if nothing else, if every if everything after the first five seconds of the movie was total shit, it still has the best epigraph, <laughs> courtesy <laughs> yes. of the Bible, uh, the, of a film this year, this decade, maybe maybe ever, um, which is I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle, which comes from the Book of Nahum, chapter Slaps three, verse so six. Hard. Yeah, uh, slaps yeah. you into a wall. Man. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> if someone said that to me, I'd be like, Jesus, I have to go lie down now. <laughs> um, Yes, this is Jordan Peele's uh, most dense and naughty film since Get Out and certainly more technically accomplished and visually impressive than both of his first two features. Uh, It's thrilling to see this kind of Spielbergian awe and horror accomplished on such a big scale by a man obviously still very much in touch with his horror roots but also someone eager to explore newer, more exciting and frightening territory as well. I love this film for the way the monster embodies so many things be it spectacle and our desire to witness it and the way if we are traumatised by a spectacle then how it defines our life racism industrial discrimination or animal husbandry uh, but at the end of the day Jean Jacket as the flying saucer UFO or monster comes to be called is also just a very hungry sky predator with the best monster design I've seen this year I really connected with this film and I don't think it's because of the characters whom I like but don't necessarily love yeah, that yeah. was kind of a, a bone I had with the movie mm. as well. As I think I don't like the pacing and the intertitles, but I, I need to rewatch it because it's kind of grown in my head since I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it three times uh, this year. I've only so seen it once. So. Yeah, it's. Uh, I start to notice its flaws less and less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really do think that it's the uh, uniqueness of seeing a UFO that cost sixty-eight million dollars to bring to the big screen. Sue me. I'm just a sucker for spectacle. No, no, and it looks it looks incredible. And if that um, kills me, then so be it. <laughs> Some of the characters in the movie have that attitude. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, uh, it's definitely. Well, I, if I had more time to prepare for this episode, I would have rewatched it, and it, I kind of see it jumping up higher into my rankings. Mm. Um, interesting movie, and I, I think Peel is really like. Any time he makes a movie, it's an event, and it's kind of hard yeah. to have accomplished that. As it, it seems like all tourism is, I guess, it's taken for granted more. Like I feel like there's only a couple of filmmakers who have that status. You know, yeah, like, yeah. There are so few um, African American filmmakers operating exactly, yeah, at too. his level. Like Antoine Fuqua, maybe back in the day, not so much anymore. I think Gina Prince Blythewood who made The Woman King is mm. like coming up between yeah, that yeah. and the. Um, the old guard yeah but I think Jordan Peele is still kind of the king Spike Lee yeah yeah, Spike Lee even then he's kind of gone up and down in terms of his films being yeah that's true his last couple have been wonderful but he Mm. was definitely in the wilderness for a while yeah 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 yeah. Um, well I go to my number two go for it yeah Um, the worst person in the world um, this is it's a, a horrible l- thing to say to me, Stephen. <laughs> For picking Nope, number three. No, <laughs> um, no, worst person in the world. This is a romantic comedy drama from Norway, uh, co-written and directed by Joachim Trier. It centers around Julie, played by um, Renate Rensva, a woman on the verge of turning 30, who we follow over four years as she navigates love affairs and existential uncertainty over what she wants in life. And uh, the most pivotal of these love affairs are with a- Axel, played by Andrews Danielson Lee, an acclaimed comic book artist who's 15 years her senior, and Ivand, um, played by Herbert Nordstrom, a barista who is already in a relationship with uh, another woman when he meets Julie first. Um, yeah, this movie hit me on a real uh, personal, emotional level. Like, we're both in our 20s. I'm turning 28 next month, man. 
And I'm already 28. How do you think I feel? <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it's rare you get movies that capture both the great things about being um, in your 20s. Like you're young, you can party, you're meeting new people, you can reinvent yourself. But also the anxieties of it, you know, like the dating, the worrying about the future, the like, is this the career I want? Is this person right for me? Do I see myself married or with kids in the future? And I feel like there were two movies that nailed those feelings this year and they were Cha-Cha Real Smooth and The Worst Person in the World. <laughs> But um, I think Chacha Rismood, despite how much I, I love the writing and the central performance by Cooper Rafe, I think that story is a little less authentic. Like it's about a 22-year-old party starter at Baron Bat Mitzvahs who has this will-they-won't-they relationship with a 32-year-old mother played by Dakota Johnson. That's not a thing that happens every day, you know? No. Um, on the other hand, what is, I think, truly amazing about The Worst Person in the World is that it really is just about the day-to-day experiences of this aimless Julie character and the people she meets. And I think everything in the movie that happens is uh, very true to life and never strains credibility and... While such authenticity could maybe be boring in lesser hands, I think for the full 128 minutes of the worst person in the world, you know, like there's nowhere you'd rather be. It's so compelling, and like it's the writing and the the, the story and the way it's told. Like the movie feels like this great epic novel. Um, it has this omniscient narrator who pops up throughout the movie to guide viewers and provide context in Judy's early life. Is it Bob Balaban? No. Then I, what's the point? I know. I'm sorry. The Bob the Bob Balaban. Um, what was you saying? What was the, the joke? Bo- <laughs> <laughs> now we have Bob Balaban on the Bob Balagam. Yeah, I, I know, like it, the narrator kind of voices how Julie feels internally in certain moments, and it's also the movie's presented as being in twelve chapters with a prologue and epilogue. Um, the French title of this movie is uh, Julie in Twelve Chapters, which um, I really like too. Yeah, that's it, really good. That's very French. Though. Yeah, it yeah, sounds like a, a Goddard movie mm, or very this much, year, yeah. Lost Goddard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the greats, a real trailblazer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it basically tells this quite freely wheeling story that like zigs and zags in different directions. Yet by I think splitting it up into these tight little vignettes, some of which are very funny and satirical, some of which are a little sexy. On, on that, like, y- so who? you think you've seen every way to depict two people having kind of a mutual attraction to each other in a movie. And then you see the scene in this movie where Julie and Ivan meet at a party and clearly want to hook up. However, they're both already in relationships and neither want to cheat. Mm. So they basically dare each other to do a bunch of non-kissing and non-sex related intimate things in front of each other. And it's just such a clever and funny idea. But mm. but on top of that, like other scenes of the movie are so devastating and like make you rethink your life devastating. <laughs> and I think splitting those vignettes that all vary in tone, but also all build on each other and move towards I think what the movie's trying to say. Like splitting them into their own sections gives the movie a bit more of a pace. Um it's also I think I, I think I, like a true reflection reflection of life in that like fun and romance can often exist right next to extreme tragedy. And as well as that, like the direction is wonderful. Based on this and the other movie of um, Trier's I've seen, um, Louder Than Bombs. Oh, incredible film. Which uh, we yeah. talked about in our Who Pair episode. Yeah. Um, I think he's gifted at finding cinematic beauty in what could be considered sort of mundane moments and settings. Mm, and it's yeah. telling that a lot of the posters for The Worst Person in the World are just shots from the movie. You know, like <laughs> Julie running and smiling on a near empty Oslo street. Ivan blowing smoke into Judy's mouth. Judy like smoking on a balcony. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like you could just blow up any still from the movie and put it on a wall and be like, ah, art. <laughs> and um, Trier stages these fantasy sequences to also kind of represent what's going on in Judy's head in moments of extreme motion that are also very striking and beautiful. And um, the forms are unbelievable. Like, particularly Renzo and Danielle and Lee. Um, Renzva had previously had a tiny one-line role in an older movie of Trier's called Oslo, August 31st, and apparently was about to quit acting when Trier called her up to ask if she'd be interested in working on a project. And But he wrote the role to Judy for her. And I, ju- I just think Renzva has this such kind of emotionally open and warm quality that even when Julie makes mistakes or does something some people might not approve of, you still like the character. And um, I think New Yorker critic Richard Brody said it best, although he actually didn't like the movie very much. <laughs> but he said of her, expressions pass across her face like sunshine and clouds across the sky. 
Um, and um, I also think Danielson Lee is amazing. He seems like he's uh, Trier's muse. Um, this is their third time working together. You might know him actually. He's in, he's in um, Personal Shopper, Personal Shopper yeah. in a small yeah. role. In The Worst Person in the World, his character Axel Askel is presented at the beginning as sort of your trademark tortured artist who's maybe a bit full of himself and pompous. But the actor is given this just tremendously open performance that wins the viewer over. Like, And he, he really sells that like Askel is like talented and can be funny and charming too. And while also making you believe in his character's suffering, that like mm. the character who is like significantly older than Julie is struggling to keep in touch with a world around him that he views as so much more complicated than the one that he grew up with in his twenties. Yeah, like he, he says at one point, in recent years I reached a point in my life when it suddenly just happened when I had begun to worship what had been. And yeah. um, I think the movie builds these, happens to the best of us, Axel. The, the movie builds these climactic scenes between Askel and Julie, where it's all on Danielson Lee giving these heartbreaking monologues about his regrets in life. It's only then you realize how much you really love the character. Mm. And um, he was also in um, the I think the standout in Mia Hansen Love's excellent drama Bergman Island this year, playing a similar character to Askel in the worst person in the world, fully cementing him as the thinking person's hunk. <laughs> and um, the last thing I'll say about the words... Take a per- walk, Matthias Schoenarts. <laughs> well, the Belgian bull. <laughs> um, the last thing I'll say about uh, the worst person in the world is that it all builds this message that just because you haven't got your life totally figured out, that doesn't mean you are the worst person in the world. And that's a simple message, but it's one that's worth reminding people of because it can be easy to forget. It's true. It's true. Um, what's next? Number two. Number two. two. Number two. Park Chan-wook's decision to leave. Um, so, Hey John, played by Park Hale, is an insomniac detective in Busan, South Korea. Haunted by unsolved cases, he takes on the suspicious death of a man who either fell or was pushed from a mountain. Hei Jun becomes obsessed with the man's young wife, So Rei, played by uh, Tang Wei, and his mounting feelings for her battle with his suspicion that So Rei killed her husband. As time passes, this doomed romance spirals towards its tragic end. Uh, so for my money, this is the closest that modern film noir has ever come to the genre's origins in the 1940s or 30s. Uh, 30s, 40s, whatever. Whenever Fritz Lang started making them. Um, <laughs> so you've got the dissatisfied detective, the irresistible femme fatale, the iconic locations all drowning in fog, darkness and moral complexity. And directed by Park Chan-wook in an attempt to rein in his style, I would say it's a brave decision considering how many me- people come to his movies for the sex, the violence and the dark comedy. Uh, not to say that there isn't any of those three in Decision to Leave, but it deals them out with spoons rather than spades. Did you hear him talk about that? Well, he, he gave his reasons for it. He was like, I always thought of my movies as being very romantic and people would only talk about the violence. <laughs> Listen, if you're... Uh, <laughs> Old boy is kind of romantic, I, just in the completely wrong ways. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I get what he means. They're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're soulful yeah, movies. Yeah, they're yeah. soulful, yeah. It's a great feature of South Korean cinema that in a lot of their best movies, every character, no matter how small, uh, will often feel like a real living human. Um, all of the other detectives are great comic relief characters. They're always tripping downstairs. They're making mistakes. Um, like when they're... Cha- they're, they're um, hey Jun and his partner at the start are chasing after a criminal... But as part, they're running up this endless staircase. Unbelievable sequence. Yeah. Uh, incredible sequence um, that ends with a knife versus chainmail glove fight, which is incredible. It's like, um, this is the guy who made Old Boy. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, Hey Jun is like really fit. Uh, he's always prepared. He's got like pockets full of like wipes and sunglasses and everything he might need on the job. Um, whereas his partner only really carries his gun and his handcuffs. But it's very unfit. So halfway through up the uh, up halfway through the staircase chase, he just collapses and he's like <gasps> And then at the end of it, he's like, what kind of guy isn't what kind of guy is carries his gun but isn't fit enough to use it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I said, all the other detectives are great comic relief characters. There's one towards the 
latter half of the movie who's just kind of an outcast in the apartment complex he lives in. Everyone hates him for reasons that are... Well, it's, in fairness, the character's kind of androgynous. It might be a man or a woman, I'm not sure. Um, oh, yeah, I remember this. Um, and everyone just hates them for... No reason that's ever specified, but it's really funny how, like, they'll walk up to a group of people and everyone else will just walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the the chauvinist the chauvinistic villains all feel real. And Hei Jun's wife, played by uh, Lee Jung Hyun, may seem heartless and uncaring, but would anyone really like to live with Hei Jun? <laughs> seems like a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and a quick glance behind the scenes will tell you that it's one of the visu- most visually impressive films of this year on a purely technical Absolutely. level. Absolutely, it's yeah. the best looking movie by miles. Ahead. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and even without that glance behind the scenes, it's a beautiful film with some truly like crazy shots throughout it like shots through a dead man's eye looking up at the ants crawling over his body or um, shots through a phone screen or a computer screen there's like a text they managed to make texting very cinematic yeah. it's like the only yeah. movie I've ever seen that really did it that's yeah yeah well personal shopper that's all oh actually that's, <laughs> actually yeah that's a very good point um I would, I would say it does it better than Prisoner Shop. I would say so too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and above all that, all the that though, it's the tragically doomed romance at the centre that would really keep me coming back to it. I think Hei Jun and Seo Rei only kiss once in the film, and it's a goodbye kiss more than anything else. And the fact that this is a relationship based more on time wasted apart than on time spent together should, frankly, op- have opened your floodgates, Stephen. I know it should have. Um, I, I think I need to watch this movie again. It's another one like Nope where. I'm marveling at the way it looks and the production of mm. it, but I, I found its story very um, labyrinthine and kind of like the first half of the movie, I like think it's perfect, and then does a time jump. And then after the time jump, I get a little bit like oh, this is strange incredibility. I don't really understand how all these separate threads are weaving together, and it sort of ended in a way that left me a bit cold. I've been talking to you about mm. it, and you gave me kind of an explanation for your read of the ending, which I actually. I'm like, oh, that, that's a great read. Yeah, and yeah. I would love to rewatch it again, thinking of it through that lens. Yeah, so for anyone confused about the ending, I'll leave you with this cryptic clue. So Ray will always be a mystery to Hei Jun. Mm. And I'll leave anyone that hasn't seen the film yet, or that has, and is confused about it, to figure that out for themselves. I think it's on movie Happy now, viewing. so I'm, that's yeah, another one I'm going to watch. I can and see it really, again, like, no jumping up in my yeah, estimation. Yeah, And it gets a physical release January 9th. Beautiful. Because I've been looking that up. <laughs> um, will we do number one? Yes, yes, we will. All right, I'll do. I'll do mine first. Um, cool. This sh- it shouldn't have been much of a surprise if you listen to the to this one episode. It's uh, three thousand years of longing. Um, I won't spend too long on this because I did attempt oh, to monologue <laughs> about it in our last episode, um, which uh, I, I thought came out quite well. That nice, is, nice episode. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, people should check that out, and people should check out to this one part one, and just check out our whole back catalog. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's about time we got famous. I know. <laughs> Swinton uh, stars in this as a narratologist, you know, a person who studies stories, who is in Turkey for a conference and who purchases an antique bottle. Taking it back to her hotel room, she opens it and a djinn or genie, uh, played by Idris Elba, comes out. In order to be freed, um, the djinn needs Al- Alethea, the Swinton character, to make three wishes. However, she says, you know, she's content with her life and that she doesn't need anything. And being a narratologist, she's wary of the djinn's all stories about wishes are culturing tales. So in order to put her mind at ease and grow closer to her, the djinn tells her his life story and his experiences with his three previous masters, who are all also women. My name is Alethea. My story is true. I am a solitary creature by nature. I have no children, no siblings, no parents. I did once have a husband. If there is fate, who can say? But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. I like it. 
kit. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. So, what would you wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. I already discussed why I love this movie so much previously, so I thought I'd talk more about my reasoning for picking it as the best movie I saw this year. Honestly, the worst person in the world could have been Numero Uno, but um, I gave the edge to 3,000 Years of Longing mainly for two reasons. One, I think 2,000 Years of Longing needs the love. Like, this was a... Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Director George Miller's follow-up to Mad Max Fury Road. It cost $60 million to make. It's all on the screen. The sequence is flashing back to the gin's life before meeting Alethea. It feels so vast and expansive. It's a very vibrant-looking movie. The colors pop off the screen, the clothes, the sets, particularly in the flashback scenes, are so lavish. Special effects are out of this world. And yet, apparently, it only made like $20 million at the box office. Ooh. And while critics seem to like it, 71% Rotten Tomatoes, not to be sniffed at. No, that's um, true. There's been no awards buzz, and I haven't seen a pop-up on many um, critics' best-of-year lists. Mm. So I, I want to correct the balance there. My other reason for crowning 3,000 Years of Longing as my favorite movie of 2022 is its uniqueness. Like, I've never seen anything like it before. Like... It's got this very unusual structure in that for much of its runtime, it's just two of the world's finest actors who have great chemistry with each other, playing characters in a hotel room, musing on life, their past, the nature of storytelling, and the, the dialogue in these sections are stunningly rich and evocative and filled with beautiful metaphors, while never feeling, like, stagey. Like, it's still somehow natural. But um, you have this bottle setting then contrast with these epic sequences portraying the Jin's life over 3,000 years, as he intersects with these real-life historical events that I knew nothing about and are fascinating. And so you have, like, the, the movie blends the blockbuster whiz-bang of something like Mad Max Fury Road with what's totally at its heart. And it, never, it, it makes, you know, no effort to try and hide this. A romantic drama mm. with a strong, independent, middle-aged woman at its center, which is so, like, rare. And on top of that, it's also a fish-out-of-water comedy, so it's very funny. Um, as I mentioned more in depth in the previous episode, it's a movie that makes you actually think about the nature of stories. You know, it's basically Miller debating with himself. Like, do we really need stories in a world where it seems like there's less and less mystery? Should I really have made Babe Pig in the City? <laughs> <laughs> Should I spend $60 million on this genie movie? Um, and, you know, is, is there? do we really need stories in a world where, like, we know everything there is? Or it seems like it can be like that sometimes. And I, I think he comes to a conclusion... Um, to that question that's really uplifting and profound and I think true and it's also a movie about how much the world has changed over 3,000 years but also how a lot of things have remained the same it's a movie about love and loneliness and as its title suggests longing and there's just this bittersweet feeling that just radiates off the film um, it's a movie I've seen twice now both times I got teary not because it's sad per se but because certain lines from it are so beautiful and profound and crystallize in words feelings that like you, you didn't think could be succinctly mm, you know, captured yeah. in words like sometimes it's like a simple line like the Jin casually saying to Alethea we exist only if we are real to others or um, other times it's like a home monologue like when Alethea is delivering her fairy tale like narration and says love is not something we come to by reason it's more like a vapour a dream perhaps to lure us into the enchantment of our own stories if that's so how are we to know if it's even real is it a truth or simply a madness you heard it here first. And uh, for football fans, and this is no joke, it ends with Idris Elba's character showing off some sick FIFA Street-ass skills. So <laughs> five stars. I okay, can't wait to see yeah. it again. Fair enough. Um, do you want to give yeah, your number yeah. one? Let's get erect. With Red Rocket. Woo! My yeah. number four. Sean Baker's um, sort of compelling sleazeball character drama uh, mixed <laughs> with uh, Italian exploitation comedy <laughs> so down on his look porn star uh, Mikey Saber played by uh, 
Scary Movie 3's Simon Rex is back in his hometown of Texas City with no job, no money and only the clothes on his back. He convinces his estranged wife Lexi played by um, non-professional actress Brie Elrod and her mother Lil played by another non-professional actress Brenda, Brenda Deese who tragically died this year unfortunately um, oh, to let him live with them uh, my, well you should be following uh, Sean Baker on tw- Twitter then you know I'm so sorry <laughs> I found uh, Letterboxd he's got a great account okay that's good uh, Mikey sets about getting back on his feet dealing weed to refinery workers from a donut shop there he meets barely legal high schooler Strawberry played by Susanna Son and sees a way back into the porn industry on the back of Strawberry's potential you said you're never going to step a foot in Texas again. I know, this is unexpected. Oh, nothing with you is unexpected. Your last job is over 17 years ago. That's quite a gap. Well, you know, I've worked almost every day for the last 17 years. I moved back in with my wife last week. No, I'm calling the cops. Four, nine, really? eight. We decided to make a run of it. I just need a place to crash for a couple of days. What's the big deal? Mikey, go fuck yourself. All right, look, I'm going to be straight with you. I'm an adult film actor. Excuse me? So why are you back, Mr. Hollywood? Mikey! Welcome back, dude! I'm on top of my game right now on, like, every single possible level. Physical stamina, my mind is sharp, I'm taking 5-HTP for serotonin in my brain. Yeah. With my skill and ability, there's no denying what I can do. The universe is on my side, bro. Before long, it'll be like we're still married. We are still married. Um, so yeah as I said this is a film defined by its uh, compelling sleaziness and if that plot synopsis puts you off this film probably isn't for you um, it's full of uh, well it's full of sleaze uh, as should be obvious um, Mikey Sabre's a dirtbag he's a pretty horrible repulsive man um, he's opportunistic and only cares about himself uh, and is willing to do anything even pretending to care about other people to get uh, what he wants Um, he is constantly along with everyone else covered in a slick layer of sweat dirt or sweaty dirt except Strawberry who remains uh, camera ready throughout uh, which may be a product of Mikey Sabre's imagination Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Mikey Sabre is a suitcase pimp that is a male porn performer who uh, past his prime has become a de facto agent for much younger more able female performers and takes a cut of their profits and like I said he's a repulsive opportunistic man played to perfection by Simon Rex who looks like stropped leather with a six pack uh, he looks really he looked really sunburnt throughout the whole movie <laughs> yeah. um, and rarely has a film made the inside world of porn acting feel so interesting Mm. Yeah, there's the uh, he, there, it's boogie nights. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's Actually, two, to be honest, we had three big porn movies this year because there was X and there was um, Pleasure, which I haven't seen. Mm, me neither. Yeah, I've seen X, um, which is probably the fake more more the faker uh, porn yes. movie this they made this year. Um, and like, there's there's two sequences where he explains to two different people how he how it's possible for the man to win best oral. And I won't explain why, but it's a, it's pretty funny if you can get past the fact that, that you're like, this guy's a dirtbag. <laughs> yes. Um, and, but all, all the whole film is seen through Mikey's chauvinistic and opportunistic worldview, world which may have been cracked uh, by how his desperation has maybe driven him slightly around the bend. Uh, and it's not that he's insane, but, you know, the, the, you're always questioning, oh, does, does Strawberry actually look like that? No high schooler looks like that. No, no teenage girl looks like that. Um, is it all really coming together so well from up to that point? Like, is he, is he, is he, is NSYNC's number one smash, bye bye bye, really playing in his head all the time? Yeah. And um, I think his disregard for everyone and everyone aside from where he's headed with Strawberry is his, his worst feature. Um, like, there's a bit where um, 
his friend, quote unquote, um, Lonnie. Uh, who, Lonnie, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Who was a waiter uh, spotted by Sean Baker before um, he cast him in this movie. Yeah, and so that's how he, he found Susanna Son. Um, at the he met her at the premiere for yeah. Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Yeah, the Joaquin, yeah. much forgotten Joaquin Phoenix movie. Yeah, that that film no one saw. Yeah, and uh, so like he. There's a bit where Lonnie points out um, the Texas killing fields to him, which is this very famous area for dumping the bodies of murdered women. Unfortunately, they just did a Netflix talk about it. Yeah, and all of and Amy Mann, Michael Mann's daughter, made, a, made a movie, movie that movie was about okay. It. I haven't seen it. I'm sure it's grand. Though. I'm sure she's got some of her father's skill in there. Um, and like he has a really muted reaction to it. He's like, oh, I don't care. Basically, uh, he, he he doesn't say it, but you read that that yeah. on his face and um. And it's, it, as I said, like Simon Rex won best uh, male lead at the Film Independent Spirit Awards or Independent Film Spirit Awards. You could say I can't remember the real title of them. Um, He's an independent spirit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he is perfect casting because he has experience in three scary movie films and a superhero movie as a. Playing like dumb assholes, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and the character is so well written and performed that by by the final shot, a little bit of you will be hoping that Mikey Saber just gets away clean. Mm, he, just, just, there's a little spark he, in there that like, the th- well, it's not like you're hoping for it. It's like, can he get away with this? I know, right? Can he get away with this? It, it's the movie just navigates this very tricky balance of elements and tones with such a deft skill because like. It presents itself as this like knockabout comedy, mm. you know, about Mikey, and he he's such a hapless, foolish figure who just can't catch a break. Like we, the first time we see him, he's like badly bruised, he has nowhere to go, you know, and like people don't have much sympathy for that, and like he can't get a job in his hometown because of his past. And nonetheless, the character has this enthusiasm and optimism, and loves, kind of lust for life that is genuinely kind of, and he's kind of funny as well. Yeah, you kind yeah. of like him, yeah. and. But over the course of the movie, we start to see how, yeah, Mikey uses this kind of humor and boyish charm to disarm people so that he can manipulate them. And yeah. it's like, you know, if you give him an inch, he will take a mile. Like once his wife Lexi starts being kinder to him, he begins to abuse her hospitality. Yeah. Um, he befriends Lonnie, played by Ethan Darbone, who's great, so that he can use him for lifts in his car and winds up completely screwing him over. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and then there's also the plans, uh, which is the worst, to, to you know, groom the 17-year-old girl into becoming his, like, porn actress partner. Yeah. So under the surface of what's a comedy is actually this like darker movie about a narcissist who only really sees others as methods for him to advance his status and he's, you know, he's constantly hustling to get what he wants and oftentimes he can thanks to this kind of semi-celebrity status mm. but also this sheer determination and odd charisma and this ability to provoke laughter and others and it's like this kind of twisted American dream and mm. I think Baker and Rex have talked about he can read comparisons between Mikey Saber and Donald Trump. Sure, why not? Obviously, because I mean, like the movie is set in an area where Trump has huge support, and you do hear Trump on TV making speeches in the background yeah, of certain he scenes. Walks past a giant billboard at one stage, and um, I just, I'm, I, I'm not the first to say this, but I think the way Mikey is able to kind of entrance the people in this rundown Texas town could be an allegory for what Trump did on a, a national scale. Yeah, but I also think to the movie's credit, like most of its allusions like that are quite subtle, and I feel like Baker and his co-writer Chris Burgock give their audience a lot of credit and don't underestimate their intelligence like they never straight out condemn the Mikey character As, and like aside from Red Rocket's great last shot which you know I think after two year, uh, two, two hours of you know watching the Mikey character and like kind of wondering are we really seeing is this really happening or is this him from his perspective you literally get a glimpse inside his mind yeah yeah, um, yeah. but I think before that like Baker and Burgo just present Mikey and how he interacts with the world in this I think quite observational style showcasing like the good and bad about him warts and all and I think not turning him into a conventional villain makes the character feel more realistic plus it allows viewers to kind of 
see what makes him tick and why others will be attracted to him and also allows the audience to kind of make their own judgments mm. about them. Yeah. And um, on top of that, just a gorgeous movie visually, right? Yeah. Like yes. shot during COVID with a skeleton crew of 10 people and a mm-hmm. budget of over 1 million and somehow it looks better than like nearly any movie I yes. saw this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, shot on real film, uh, apparently dodging cops running through gardens and stuff <laughs> yeah, like yeah. that. I think it's a real argument for filmmakers that they're going to make a contemporary set movie actually shooting in the place where it's said, preferably on film cameras where you yeah. get that kind of warm textured look rather than that you don't get with digital yeah yeah. Um, no it's, it's huge into this really really great great movie yeah so there we did it there that's well, it yeah um, do you mind if I just before we end I, I guess I had a screener for a movie and I thought I'd plug it just because it's a smaller movie I think it needs the support go for it yeah. um, this is The Harbinger um, oh yeah I've heard about this yes yeah. I got sent a screener for this new movie and I thought I'd give it a mini plug um, it's a new movie from Andy Mitten who made uh, The Witch in the Window a few years ago which I think we both quite liked yeah yeah, yeah very good movie he also yeah. co-directed another great movie that's on Twitter called We Go On um, basically The Harbinger takes place during the COVID pandemic and centers on a woman named Monique who leaves her family bubble to go stay with a friend from her past who says she's suffering from these horrific nightmares however as Monique stays with her friend she begins experiencing similarly bad dreams all of which feature the strange figure wearing a plague doctor mask who's dubbed The Harbinger what I like about Mitten's movies is that they are a bit slower a bit more character driven than a lot of other American horrors but they're also very atmospheric and haunting and I think The Harbinger continues this trend while weaving this supernatural story that taps into feelings many people had during the pandemic of like kind of isolation and loneliness and also the kind of wondering of like is this ever going to end mm. will we ever get to spend time with people the way we did before <laughs> COVID and you know it's also dealing with how the pandemic impacted a lot of people's mental health and um, I found it very sad and very scary it's got an incredible like villainous force like the movie is not as pacey and outwardly ex- exciting as something like Smile from this year, mm. but the villain of the movie is similar to Smile's and arguably more existentially terrifying, which is high praise. Um, to reveal any more would be a spoiler, though. Um, so I was really impressed with this, and you know, for American and Canadian listeners, of which there are actually a surprisingly large amount. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Well, hey it, guys, it came. Hey guys, <laughs> it came out there in cinemas and on VOD on first of December. Doesn't have an Irish release date yet, but uh, keep an eye out for it. Mm, yeah, um, looking forward to it. But that's it. Another year of I know the face. You still liking the pop? Oh yeah, yeah. Still yeah. getting a lot of it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. More from more, more, more about my, <laughs> It's become more about myself the last three years after we didn't get famous or rich. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I, I, I love it having a kind of space where I can talk about movies with my friends. Absolutely. Yeah. But if anyone does want to give us a shit ton of money, you know where to find us. <laughs> yes. The Headstuff Podcast Studios. <laughs> um, we should say we're going to take a little break um, over the winter in order to... We're going to the beach. <laughs> Woo! Let's go to the beach. Beach, beach, that makes you old. No. Um, <laughs> we're going to see more of our friends and family, but we'll be back with yeah, a... Yeah, they're finally letting us out of the <laughs> yeah. studio. New episode. Uh, we'll probably be back with a new episode around yeah, mi- mid-February. Yeah, yeah let's say um, that. We're Put a pin in that one. recording this episode before Christmas and it won't be out till after Christmas. So I'll wish people a belated happy holidays. Merry Christmas. And a happy new year to all our listeners. Uh, thank you for the support. Um, and many happy returns. If you wanted to support us more, mm. you could subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast from. You could leave us a rating on iTunes. Uh, you know, a review. a review perhaps if you have a friend who's really into the movies why not recommend them our show mm. email anotherfacepod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to us for anything follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram if you love another face you could also consider donating five year months to us through Headstuff Plus where you can find special season bonus episodes we've multiple available now including a few in our Leading Legends series focusing on A-listers like Kristen Stewart Brad Pitt 
Jodie Foster Denzel Washington and um, more to come yeah we're actually about to record a mini episode about what cool movies you should be looking forward to in 2023 and that is just for subscribers um, Andrew where can people find more of your work you can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play why we play and how we play it as well as at fortniteflights.wordpress.com you can follow me on Letterboxd I'm either Stephen Ports or Portsville um, in a list there I ranked all 80 movies I think of the 2022 movies I saw in order of quality you can also check me out Joe.de see you later Cinefiles bye bye This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.